Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Uh, We are live on Inside the Hive. I am your host, Nick Bilton. And I'm John Kelly. Editor of the High John, and Nick's friend. Not John Kelly, the guy who runs the White House, right? No, we, we get confused for each other all the time. And uh, as I say frequently, my father, who is also a John F. Kelly, was born in Boston like 15 minutes away at around the exact same time. Um, if nothing else, it's just a sign that uh, if you're from Boston and you're Irish, your name is probably going to be John Kelly. My condolences. <laughs> so... Um, uh, so I, we're going to jump in really quick uh, to my guest, but I just wanted to give you a little bit of a uh, synopsis of what we talked about today. Um, I had uh, this guy Jeff Arlowski on. He's a filmmaker. Um, he was uh, nominated for uh, – he was on the shortlist for an Oscar for a documentary he just did called Chasing Carl. Um, and I thought that this week's podcast was going to be kind of like a, a nice grounded conversation in climate change, and it turned into – a terrifying conversation about the sixth extinction where we may be like at the beginning of the end for humanity. Um, so Uh-oh. it was kind of terrifying, but, but you know, it's uh, it's a really interesting conversation. So I'm excited. Oh, I can't wait to hear Nick. I, I've always pondered how our entire uh, species is going to go extinct. So uh, well, this is no, it's, very much it's on my fascinating. Mind. I, I will, we'll talk about it more uh, after the interview, but We've had we've had five major extinctions that started around 439 million years ago, and and you know uh, corals dying and plant life dying off and dinosaurs and you name it. And there's a lot of people that think we are the beginning of uh, the next one, and it could be uh, could be the end of us. So so we better jump in before uh, before that happens. And just a very quick tease: after your conversation, we're going to ponder what will go extinct first. Humanity or Facebook, based on a recent column that you wrote. (laughs) All right, let's jump in. So my guest today is Jeff Orlowski, who is from Boulder, Colorado. Is that right? Uh, From New York, but I live in Boulder. uh, Who who flew out uh, uh, to L.A. this week to talk to us. And um, he is a filmmaker uh, who has done several films, and one of which is on the short list for... Uh, an Oscar for documentaries called Chasing Coral. So I watched the movie uh, this week, and uh, it's incredibly sad. It's a documentary uh, about climate change um, and some of the effects on it. Can you just give the listeners a, a you know, I would say 140 characters, but we don't do that sure. anymore. It's 280-character <laughs> version Perfect. of what the film yeah. is about. I try not to think of it as a sad movie, personally, but it's... Um, it's pretty sad. It, it can be sad, and I think it. I think it. It does depend on the audience. But um, we we learned about this phenomenon of coral bleaching, and we built a team uh, and had to build new camera technology to try to go out and document this phenomenon. The scientists have known about it for a while. Um, as the oceans warm, corals turn white, and then ultimately they die, um, and that's never really been documented properly. And so our team went out on this quest to go 
you know, travel the oceans and find the story. So, so one of the things that I find really interesting is when I first um, was introduced to you and, and watched them, before I watched the film, I was like, oh, Carl, like, that's boring. Yeah. You know, why would I want to talk to someone about, about Carl? Like, it's not a big deal. And, yep. and then I started watching the movie and, and you start to see this thing happen where uh, 29% of, of, of Carl around the world uh, died yeah. just last year alone. Yeah. And, yeah. and you see the effects happening. And it, it is like, it's, it's the, one of the saddest things it's I've re- ever seen. It is seen. sad. It is a sad story. We tried to make it um, entertaining and fun, which I, I think we did a good job at. Um, but it is this... Like, the state of the planet is not good right now. Like, the planet is really suffering some major catastrophes. So, the, the, and that's the thing that, for me, that was so fascinating about watching this is that, um, is that you get to see that yeah. uh, in real time. You yeah. get to see the before and after yeah. as it's happening. So, yeah. can you, so and, what, what brought you to this? How, yeah, why and, coral? And just, just like you were saying, I knew nothing about coral. I knew nothing about the ocean. I went scuba diving a couple times in college and didn't. In retrospect, I now realize that those places that I went diving were not really healthy and they were just boring, bad sites. And so I never got the, you know, the ocean bug and I never did it again. And then when this project started, um, Richard, one of the subjects of the film, he reached out to us. He had seen our previous film, Chasing Ice, and we did something similar conceptually. We were documenting climate change through glaciers. We wanted visual evidence of what's happening to glaciers. And so we did time lapses of that. Um, Richard had seen that project and he reached out to us and started telling us about what was happening in the ocean. And I knew nothing about corals. I didn't care about them much. And the entire, you know, first several months was this huge education for me about just how essential and important this ecosystem is. Coral, I mean, coral, first of all, I can geek out now about corals. Corals are pretty fascinating. They are both plant and animal and rock all in the same really simple organism. It's, it's as simple as it gets, but it's also as complex as it gets in this beautiful way. And this tiny little plant-animal relationship can make a huge structure that is the home for millions, billions of fish all around the planet. And they are the backbone of the ocean. Like You can't have a healthy ocean without a healthy coral reef system and we are literally on path to destroy and annihilate all coral reefs around the planet so before we get to yeah. the film and and uh um and all the things that you you show in it and the, the documenting that you do what what is the what happens if if we continue on this trajectory yeah. where in a decade yeah. there, there is no yeah. more coral that's a really really great question and it's one that's really really complicated to answer because we've never run an experiment like this before we we have lost individual species, right? We we've lost this species, that species. People talk about losing species all the time. We've never lost an entire ecosystem before, and that's what we're doing. Like we are on path to lose an entire ecosystem for the very first time. What the consequences of that we don't know, but but it's not good, right? So when we when the scientists say we don't know what's going to happen, it's not like it's good versus bad. It's like is it bad versus Eft, you know how bad is you it can, going to you be? You can say fuck oh, on this. Yeah. We're, we're not <laughs> so, NPR. So it's the, the real challenge there. It's like all of nature is this house of cards, and 
all of these ecosystems feed each other, just like the human body. Like the, your, all of your organs are working together in unison to allow your body to function. And all of these different ecosystems on the planet are feeding each other and they've provided the stability. Like our oxygen comes from the ocean. Like the majority of our oxygen comes from the ocean. If the ocean isn't healthy, there are many scientists that I know that are very worried that we're gonna be losing oxygen. We've already hit peak oxygen. Like if that's not the biggest wake-up call, I, I don't know what else can make people care more well, but that's, than so, a so loss that's, in oxygen. That's one of the problems is I think that, um, you know, I remember reading this, this science fiction book. I, I, I love like these apocalyptic yeah. novels and I remember, yeah. uh, and I've read dozens of them, and I remember reading one a couple of years ago um, where it's about the earth starts to slow. It's total, mm. total yeah. fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the, the, the earth starts to slow down. It's spinning um, and the thing that I remember so distinctly about the beginning is, is she, the, the, the author says, you know, um, that it's, it's, it was a catastrophe that was happening slowly that we couldn't even see it because it right. was happening literally right. like so the slowly. earth had slowed down like half a, a second or something right. in the beginning. And of course it continues to slow more, but it feels like the problem with climate change is that we don't see it. You, see, you know, yeah. I look out my window and there's right. birds, everything looks, everything looks yeah. normal, but you have documented these things where you are actually seeing it right. on the fringes. Right. How do you get people to understand the impact? Like I, that's, yeah. that to me seems to be the biggest challenge. Yeah. It is that that's why we're stuck with this challenge. Um, and then my, my brain is instantly going to like the political challenge that we face yeah. in this country around this, um, be, which, which is unique because the rest of the world gets it. Yeah. Like the rest of the world is all act. China is kicking our ass in terms of climate solutions as well. Right. So the rest of the world gets it. It's an American political problem. It was an, it's a problem that was intentionally manufactured and intentionally like, like spread to confuse the public. So we're un, we're right now, the scientists are working to undo the damage that has been done. What do you mean it was intentionally spread to do? It, it's pretty well documented. There's a book and a film called Merchants of Doubt that is a, is a good introduction into it. But it is a, a very systematic effort that the fossil fuel industry has done to confuse the public on climate change. And we're the only country that has still fallen victim to this. The rest of the world has, has moved beyond the called a FUD campaign, F-U-D, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And the fossil fuel industry has very actively just tried to espouse doubt around whether or not the science is settled. And they've done such an effective job in this country at that, that that, that false idea still lives on. So have you, have you ever met people uh, in the fossil fuel industry and asked them, don't you feel bad? Um, I haven't asked that explicit question. Um, I've met a number of people in the fossil fuel industry. A lot of them have, uh, there's this Upton Sinclair quote where it's like, um, it's hard to convince somebody of a truth if their paycheck depends on them not believing it. Hmm. That's a butchering of, of his quote. But if your job, if your livelihood depends on a certain thing, that's what you're doing. It's hard to convince yourself, just like ethically and morally, it's hard to like, tell yourself that you're doing a bad thing, right? So it's it's really, really challenging. The fossil fuel industry, the people that I've met, think and have convinced themselves that they are doing a really great service to humanity, that human civilization has succeeded and thrived because of this product, and we need to keep using it. And they've convinced themselves that the 
the science is still up for debate. Like that, that is the story that I've, I've, and this is coming from a genuine place from people where they just think there's nothing we can do. We can't, we can't possibly switch to clean energy. So the consequences of, of climate change are just something we're going to have to deal with. Like that's, which is complete bullshit. I, that's my take on it. I think it's complete BS. Yeah. So, so getting back to the film for a minute. So you, you went out, um, you started documenting, uh, these, uh, coral reefs that Mm -hmm. were, that were bleaching. Can you, can you yeah. tell listeners a little bit about yeah. how that happens and, yeah. and what, what it looks like? So um, a, a coral is an animal, which that's, that's the base of it. It's an animal that has but tiny It's a very little, unique animal. It's a very, uni- it's it's very not... simplistic animal, yeah. right? It's an animal. It doesn't have a brain. It doesn't have organs. But it's an animal that breathes and eats. And it eats and shits and it goes through those life functions. Um, it can theoretically live forever if the conditions are right, which is pretty fascinating. Um, and it has tiny little plants that live inside of its skin that feed it. The plants practice photosynthesis just like a regular plant does, and it creates energy, and that energy is feeding the animal part. So, so the, the animals that live inside its skin are yeah. not part of the coral, it's but another, are, they are reliant on that to live. Yeah, it is, that's the, it's like the essence of what they call a symbiotic relationship. Two organisms that live in sync, that depend on each other. You can't have one without the other. The plant that lives in the coral skin can't survive on its own without the coral animal, and the animal can't survive without the plant living in it. It is this beautiful, like, they evolve together, and they feed each other. Imagine we had little solar panels living in our skin, absorbing the sun's energy and feeding us, and that that's the only way we could survive, is if we got enough sun and those little solar panels were feeding us. That is what a coral animal is doing. It's It's... It's beautiful in its simplicity. And then as a result of it, you have an entire ocean that yeah. re- re- relies on it. And then they grow. They get huge. They can build structures. The structures house animals. They house tiny little fish. Like picture a big tree branch with lots of small birds living in it. The hawks can't go and get all the little birds. Like that's what's happening in the ocean. All the baby fish live in the branches of these corals, and the big fish and the sharks can't eat them because they're protected by the, the rock structure that the corals make. And they continue to grow, and they grow and grow, and they can become the size of the Great Barrier Reef, the largest living organism on the planet. You can see it from space. And so it's this really simple relationship that becomes this really big and beautiful thing. What happens is when the water gets too hot for too long, it stresses the that relationship so picture a fever in your human body like if right now we're 98.6 degrees fahrenheit things are good if if our body temperature went up to 101 degrees we would feel really sick and shitty for a long period of time Um, what happens in the coral is that the relationship between the plant and the animal breaks down it basically the the plant starts overproducing and it's it's effectively making the animal sick and the animal then ejects the plant so if we had bad food in our stomach, we would vomit it out. The, the coral animal basically says, this is not good for me, and it gets rid of the plants. And so now, that's when they turn white. The plant is what gives it, gives it the color. And so the coral, for a period of time, it's still alive, but it's white. It's like this comatose state where it's still functioning, it's still you know, eating, it can still, it has mouths, and has thousands and thousands of tiny little mouths, and it can still eat but it's not doing well because it lost its main source of energy. If the temperature were to drop, it can come back and recover. But if the temperature stays too hot, it just it just pushes it into death. So 
over the past um, several years, yeah. uh, the oceans have been warming as a result of yeah. of global warming, and they've gone up around two to three degrees. Correct. Um, uh, the exact numbers I don't remember off the top of my head, but in the last fifty years, it's gone up um, fa- less than that Celsius. Got so it's it. like a degree, roughly a degree Celsius, I believe. Got it. Yeah. So. And that is now a permanent thing. It's not that they. It's not going back down. Correct. Well, that that this is the biggest challenge in terms of when we talk about the planet warming, is because the atmosphere isn't continuing to warm as rapidly. the The energy is going into the ocean. The ocean is absorbing a lot of the heat and a lot of the energy. And this is partially why we've seen such an increase in hurricanes, exactly, and, and other and storms. Coral bleaching and, is the big one. Yeah. What was that? Sorry. And coral bleaching and is coral the biggest bleaching. one that we're seeing now. Yeah. And so with the 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 coral bleaching, one of the things that you're seeing is that the the coral then dies after mm-hmm. the bleaching, right? Mm-hmm. Um, is it dead permanently? It's completely... those corals are dead. There's so, no. But but that reef can recover. So, um, in a in a terrestrial analogy, picture clear cutting a forest. Like those trees are dead; they're chopped down. But that forest can regrow over time. As long as you don't keep cutting it down every single year, right? So now, when 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 you kind of look at what's happened with the these coral reefs and and so many that have died, the fish. It, what's so fascinating when I was watching the documentary is um, you see these before and after pictures. Yeah. You see the picture of the uh, the coral and it's beautiful and it's it's got these vibrant colors and there are you know clownfish and it looks like you yeah. know Finding Nemo. Yeah. Uh, and um, and then you see the after pictures just just a hundred days later, yeah. and the corals all dead. There's no fish. Uh, there's no life anywhere, yeah. um, and you just see hundreds yeah. of miles of this. What happens? So what are the what are the effects that then take place? The yeah. the coral dies. The fish. The coral dies. Where the do they small go? Fish, they die. Like they lost their home. Picture everybody in Los Angeles. Like all the buildings just stopped. No electricity. No running water. No no functioning system. The coral is, it builds that structure that is the home for all the fish. So if you lose the corals, the fish don't have their home. And the small fish can't swim to an adjacent reef. First of all, the adjacent reef is probably going through the same fate anyway. But the small fish get eaten by the bigger fish. Just imagine like... Los Angeles runs out of all power and water, and you're told you have to walk to San Francisco f- to find hope. Like, you're going to lose a lot of people in that process, right? And then all the bad, like, we don't have other, there are not, no other predators that are trying to eat humans, right? But imagine there's not, stuff. Not whole, yet. Not yet. Yeah. But there are a whole bunch of bears and, and tigers, you know, and mountain lions. On the 101 freeway. On the 101 waiting for you as you're walking from here to San Francisco. Like, that's what the ocean is dealing with the baby fish get eaten by the bigger fish and the bigger fish and the bigger fish and then the the only ones that make it through are the larger predators the really large fish or sharks and things like that um, that can actually swim to an adjacent reef but still honestly like the science isn't even there we don't really know what happens to everything because they're just gone but one of the things that you talk about in the film is that um that it affects you know hundreds of thousands of people who can no longer fish around the reefs and that's where they get their source of protein. 11% of the world population depends on fish for their main, for coral reefs, for their main source of protein. 11% from coral reefs? Yeah. Yep. And so if these coral reefs... It's like half half a billion to a billion people. The numbers estimate, they range. But it's a shitload of the world population. And 
And are people that record that, that rely on those are they is, are they going through malnourishment? Is is it already that's, affecting that's what's them? going to happen? So I was just down um, uh, about a month ago. I was down in Kenya on a coral reef. We're doing some planting and restoration on a coral reef on this tiny little island. Uh, with 2,000 people, no electricity on this island. They eat fish three meals a day. Like, fish is their main source of protein. They eat it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And what happens when all of their coral dies and they lose all their fish? Like That, that has a huge, huge implication. F- malnourishment is going to be a major, major issue. And, and then that then leads to... Um, climate refugees. So just drawing another analogy, not on the ocean. Well, so that's, yeah, that was yeah. my next question is one of the things that I've, I've read about is that, um, that while we, we can't see the effects of this happening right before our eyes, because right. it's happening slowly, it's happening in the ocean and so on. One of the things that we will start to see is climate refugees yep. And, yep. and so on. That's Syria. And Syria is a climate refugee story. So tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. It started with a drought. It started with a multi-year abnormal drought. The farmers couldn't grow their food anymore. So a lot of the farmers started going into the cities looking for jobs, looking for food, looking for opportunity. And that on top of political turmoil, you just have a powder keg. All right? And that's that's what we're seeing. But when when people don't have food to feed their families, they get really upset. <laughs> and and Southeast Asia, the number of people like the dependence on these reefs for food and for their livelihoods is going to get majorly disrupted. We're going to see, because of rising sea levels, because of um, dying corals, uh, because of loss of fish stock, we're going to be seeing a mass migration of people from where they live right now to other places nearby. So where are people going to be migrating from and where are they going to go to? All low-lying island nations. I mean, there are islands where they're already designing their entire plan on how they move. How do you migrate an entire population of people? Um, India has built a wall, a fence, I believe mostly, but around Bangladesh. Like, they've already been defending themselves against the influx that they are anticipating coming from Bangladesh. Um, we we hear uh, it's it's a huge question like we we have climate refugees in florida coming from puerto rico right so you look at hurricanes it's it might get to the point where this is something that i hadn't really anticipated until the summer where you look at the caribbean and you look at the storms hitting the caribbean those islands might just be uninhabitable yeah like you can't live there if you're going to get her like massive category five hurricanes hitting on a regular basis then what happens like all of those people are the, the the stress that that puts on Florida is huge. Okay, so now one of the one of the questions I have is that you, when I when I watched the film, there's I mean I think there was a lot of a lot of sad moments in the movie yeah. um, for me at least. Uh, and again, look, you know, people listening, yeah. like I could give two shits about Carl Reese before right. I yeah, watched yeah. this, and afterwards mm-hmm. I was like, oh my god, what can I do to to, to help stop this from happening yeah. and and the repercussions that can fall of it? Yeah. But what's that? I'm going to quote you on that. that. Sounds yeah. good. Um, but but then. I, there was a scene in the film when um, the uh, the divers are going out to take to document the the coral reefs dying, and there's um, and that one of the divers I don't know where it was but they were they had set up shop in the back of a floating restaurant. What yeah. country was that in? That was in New Caledonia. In New I'd Caledonia, never even heard of the country before this. And it was and and just for people listening, so they, the divers have to go out every single day to photograph the coral reefs so they can they can see the the transformation happening, and they. Uh, the, just in this specific spe- specific place, they end up finding you know a, the the place that they would launch from was this 
this uh, this restaurant, floating restaurant that. And the thing that's so fascinating is that you see the the divers in the water, and they're documenting these these hundreds of miles of of dying reefs and and fish that are dying, and so on and so forth. And they get back on the boat on this this floating restaurant, and there's techno music playing, and there's people yeah. dancing, and they're having a blast, jumping in and out of the water. And it was such a perfect analogy yeah. for what is happening. But then I also had this feeling of, well, what the hell can I do? Yeah. And so what can I do? It's tough. It's the hardest question that we get faced with all the time, and I wish there was an easy, simple answer to it. I can go into a lot of lot of different thoughts, but ultimately, the way our entire system is structured right now is fundamentally flawed, um, both in terms of uh, the path that we're on for climate change, but even, honestly, my thoughts more and more lately are just like how capitalism is structured. Oh, I can it's fundamentally agree with that. Flawed. And so that, that's what I've been thinking about quite a bit more recently but um we the biggest thing that we need right now is a shift in mindset that's my take on it like we we can't continue on the status quo because um the ecosystem services that nature provides our clean air our clean water our oxygen supplies all of these things we need them and we depend on nature to give us these things. And right now, that's what we're disrupting in a big way. We, we need to figure out how to get business and government to shift on this quickly. But we, okay, so, no, but here's the problem. So I, we, I live in California. We, um, we recycle. Right. Uh, we have a little bin on right. our kitchen counter where right. we put all of our, like, groceries that we don't end up eating. Right. And then we put them in the green bin. Right. We, um, I drive an electric car now. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, I don't think I'll ever go back yeah. to a gas yeah. car, especially Great. after seeing this documentary. Mm-hmm. Um, but yet, you know, you has, you just said you've been yeah. on planes all the time. Yeah. Like, that's yeah. contributing. Right. But instead of... And here's here's one of the things. So... The question of what can I do has often been answered by the environmental community with messages of sacrifice. It's do less. Don't do that. Don't drive. Don't fly. Don't eat this. Don't do that. And that has that is that is a mindset that a lot of conservatives have resisted. It's like, oh, you're wanting to restrict business and you're stopping growth and you're hurting the economy. And we're now getting to the stage because of new technology where it doesn't need to be a sacrifice mindset. Instead of don't do these things, the mindset is let's do these things better. So you just said you're driving an electric car. Like that is um, that is the solution and the path that we need to be going towards. Instead of flying less, we need to be ex- like expediting electric carbon-free flying. There are already there are companies that have small-scale electric planes. No, uh, NASA and Boeing are working on. Uh, and I think JetBlue, too, are working on hybrid planes, and then the next round is going to be hydrogen-powered planes, it seems. So we can fly. Like That's a technical challenge that we know how to solve. It's going to take time, but we can get there eventually. But how do we fly carbon-free? Like Those are the types of questions that we need but to be asked. But those are the type of questions that, that I can't solve. Am right. I, am I can't. Right. So, but... So- that's you can come in in the, in the mindset like this this podcast right now this is being part of the solution talking about driving an electric car is being part of the solution 
finding the friends who you know, maybe, you know, where are you from? Like, so we're, we're doing a lot of work right now in one specific state. We're focusing our work on South Carolina. And what we're Why trying South to Carolina? do, it can go into a long, long conversation. We have a bunch of partners and support there. Um, but it's also a pretty conservative state that, that we think we can have an influence in. And what we're working on right now is really testing to see with this film, with a campaign, with the right messaging, how can we get more and more people aligned with the solutions, right? Regardless of what somebody thinks about climate change, regardless of what somebody thinks about like this political split, we want to build bridges and we want people all talking about how do we get to these solutions? How do we expedite clean energy? How do we expedite... Call you know, yeah. Energy. Um, so how do, we, how do we expedite all of these solutions and how do we get more and more people into the conversation to, in pursuit of those same goals. So that's one of the things that we're really thinking about and focusing on. So is there somebody in your life that might be skeptical of climate change? Like show them so the So is film. this essentially like a change one person? It's like the starfish story, you know, the starfish yeah. story, right? The, or the butterfly wing or, or no, the start throwing a starfish the, back yeah, in the ocean. The, 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 yeah. the, the kid, he's walking yeah. down the beach and he, uh, uh, he's, there's all these starfish that are stranded on the ocean yeah. and he's picking them up one by one and throwing them in. An old man walks up and he says, what are you doing, kid? You can't stave all these starfish. There's thousands of them. And the kid looks at the old man and looks down at the starfish, throws it, throws one of them in the ocean. And he says, well, I saved that one. Yeah. Is that what, is that the approach to this? I think there are, we need to be trying and testing every possible, possible approach we can. No, but, but for I, the individual, for the individual, for the individual, I do think that's one of the things like I can, I can list off all the things about how you can lower your own individual carbon footprint, right? Those, those lists exist everywhere. I think that somebody, that, that's something that everybody should be thinking about on a regular basis, but we need that, we need that starfish approach. We need to be planting the seed in more and more people. We need everybody talking about it. You know, if all the conservative, if, if we had a bunch of conservative leaders we all do. saying, we do. And we, yeah. <laughs> well, but if, if they were all, if, if conservative leaders were saying we need to be prioritizing protecting the planet, protecting our resources, protecting our clean air, then we would be seeing a, a faster shift on this. Yeah, I think that, you know, one of the things that's really disheartening is, you know, just at the beginning of this year alone, uh, well, last year you've seen, you know, Scott Prude at the EPA repealing yeah. all these regulations, safety hazards, so on and so forth. You, you see the you know, uh, uh, the interior department, you know, is now saying we're going to, they're going to allow offshore drilling, yeah, right. um, yeah. all these things that are, that, e that even Republican senators right. in, in Florida right. and places like that right. are saying, no, we don't want that. They're, they're operating on a fundamentally flawed premise and they don't understand how the planet works, right? I, I, I draw this analogy to a bank account. Like if you, if you think about the planet as a huge, huge bank account where there are all these great resources and we've been living off of them for such a long time. We've been living off the interest for such a long time. But now as population is growing, as our usage of these resources is increasing, we're eating into the principle. We're eating more and more and more into the principle. They're operating on a mindset that, this, that, that it's an infinite bank account. And that you can just take as much as you want. But that's not how nature works. Like, it is a finite bank account. It is limited resources. And it's not like, okay, let's just use all the oil until the oil runs up. I'm talking about, like, the, our air, our water, where we live. Like, these are the things that, that nature is providing us. The scientists are telling us we're eating into the bank account. We're eating into the principle we're, gonna, we're approaching bankruptcy. 
And we need to we need to realign how we use these resources so we don't hit bankruptcy. That's where we talk about massive systemic collapse. Like that's what we are approaching is collapse on a scale that nobody's ever seen before. So I, you know, there's been articles about you know biological annihilation. You know, you, you mm-hmm. all these annihilation. Sorry, that you've uh, you 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 just mentioned this. What are some of the like the worst case scenario concepts of what could happen? Worst case scenario concepts. The one that I think about the most is oxygen. So we have we have hit peak oxygen already. Right now, we're out, every inhale that we're taking right now, it's twenty one percent oxygen. Of that twenty one percent oxygen, the majority of it is coming from the ocean. That's coming from phytoplankton. These tiny, tiny, tiny little plants that live in the ocean that photosynthesize. Right? They've been on the planet for four billion years or so. There was a like we've we have the long history of oxygen on the planet. We know when it's gone through peaks and valleys. There's a great oxygenation. Like we are on this planet because of oxygen, um, and because of these tiny little machines in the ocean that make our oxygen for us. Those machines, those phytoplankton, are now dying because of temperature and ocean acidity, both consequences of burning fossil fuels. Four of the five mass extinction events that we've seen on the planet have come in some part linked to ocean acidification. The fifth one being the asteroid that was a totally different system. But the others are all linked to ocean acidification. We are acidifying the oceans right now because of our burning of fossil fuels at a very, very high and abnormal rate. The phytoplankton, they are we're pushing them beyond their limits with high ocean temperatures, and we're pushing them beyond their limits with ocean acidity. Um, we've seen a massive drop in phytoplankton populations in the ocean, some parts 40% reduction in, in population. There are entire parts of the ocean now that are dead zones, so they just can't support life like they normally do. Um, I was just reading something recently. Um, roughly the the surface area equivalent of Africa is under-oxygenated. So if you look at the ocean, a volume of that equivalent, surface area volume equivalent to the size of Africa has less oxygen in it than it should. As we continue to go down this path, we hit a point where the ocean is no longer creating the amount of oxygen that we need. So what does that then look like? What are the consequences of that? So in terms of human health and human, what we need, like the projection, some of the projections by the end of the century, sea level... At 21% right now, oxygen might feel like it feels in Denver. Like the amount of oxygen is going to get reduced, such that so it when feels. I, so when less. I when I go to Denver and I have a hard time breathing because right because the oxygen is that's it's because low. there's it's thinner air, but there's less oxygen in the air. You might feel that at sea level. Denver might feel like you know you're on Everest. You're on Everest. Well, that's, that might be a stretch, but pretty close. But, yeah. to, but that analogy is what we're what we're talking about here. Like we are reducing the amount of oxygen. So then, what does that do to the trees and the birds and the plants? Changes the- all of it. Some things go up, some things go down, some things benefit, some things. But but the thing is, that's the biggest thing around climate change, right? These are changes that are happening that we can't fully predict. There are winners and there are losers, but humanity is dependent on the stability of the system. Like we, some places on planet Earth are going to do better than others. Like Canada is going to be really, really awesome at the end of the century. It's going to be like right? a beach town and like exactly. in LA. Like, and we're seeing everything is migrating north. In the U.S., we're seeing animals, plants, growing agricultural zones. The U.S. Department of Agriculture has, has identified that the growing regions are all shifting north. 
So Canada will fare a bit better, but but really the underlying problem is like where we grow our food and what we can grow in different places, all of that's going to change. The rainfall patterns are changing. So we don't have the stability. Imagine running a business where every year for years and years and years, you made a certain amount of money, you spent a certain amount of money, you had the cycle, you knew what was going on, and then out of nowhere everything gets disrupted. You don't know where you're getting your products from. You don't know your market's disappearing. Nobody wants to buy your product. You can't get that material anymore. Like, it's a massive change. So when you mentioned the, the five mass extinctions um, before, do you think that, you know, <clears throat> that there's a world in which we, you know, that the earth is like, I'm kind of done with you fucking yeah. assholes for now. I, I, I have some friends who, who study this and are experts in this who anticipate the loss of multiple billions of humans because of because the of results changes. of climate change because of the real uh, climate change is part of this even bigger problem of the anthropocene right and so climate change is one of the that's the, the most visceral one but because of what humans are doing to the planet because of the changes that we're making there I, I have a number of friends who are really really concerned about that and i try not to go down that dark path i like going down dark, yeah, dark paths so anyone it. who's ever listened to yeah. this podcast knows um, so to Talk to us about it. What is it? What What are the some of the theories? Like, what are the? Well, it, a lot of it is this oxygen stuff. A lot of it is changing food. A lot of it is um, uh, is war too. Because when you have disrupted societies, when people don't have food or places like to live, Syria. like Syria, just imagine Syria. Like Syria was un- around ten million refugees. Under that, right? Um, the The U.S. government has anticipated two hundred million refugees by the end of the century, um, from various reports and papers that have come out. Like, we're talking about 20x more than what Syria has yielded. And then that, I think some of those estimates are pretty conservative, too. Like, we're going to have massive disruption. And when, when you have people, I, I, I don't, it is daunting. It's horrifying sometimes. So, so the, your friends that, that, that predict that there will be some yeah. sort of mass extinction of humans, um, what... What are they? How do they think this plays out? What do they? How long does it ta- take to happen? Is there a way to stop it? You I know? mean, I have a bunch of scientist friends who go for therapy just for this. Like, this is a new field of scientific therapy around how screwed and how fucked up the planet is that the scientists just need help coping with it. It sounds like fun, actually. It's fascinating. <laughs> yeah. Um, and 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 do they think that you know the 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 projection is that. Um, the things that you're talking about, oxygen start to go away. We have refugees that come in. There's there are wars as a result of it, and next thing you know, it's you know cats and dogs living together, mass hysteria. Or that some of them think that. I mean, I try not to go. I personally try not to go down those darkest paths. I in my mind, I've looked at what's that worst case scenario, and thinking everything that we do is one step away from that worst case scenario. Like all of, that's why the work is valuable. That's why we need to get the story out there because all of this is one little step farther and farther away from that worst case scenario. But no, but but, yeah. but going back to that yeah. that moment on the boat um at the yeah. the floating restaurant. You know, I remember I was in Chicago for work um for a meeting that I had to go to uh, the day that Sandy Hook happened, mm, uh, yeah. the, the the mass shooting in, in Connecticut with all these little kids that were killed. And I remember um, I was walking home from in, in this meeting and I, I, uh, I saw this restaurant was beaming with people, packed to mm-hmm. the brim. And, you know, and I, I remember thinking to myself like, yeah, we've all got to eat. We continue with our lives. But 
but we continue with our lives. Like nothing seems to right. make anyone change well, or do anything. Thing, like, and that day, you, uh, two dozen little kids had been shot and killed. And and it's and it feels like it's the same thing with climate change. It's it seems like you know you're gonna leave after this, and 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 what's going to change? The, the underlying problem in my mind, and it ties together lots of varying and differing thoughts. The underlying problem is the system of capitalism. Damaging the planet is profitable right now. Like, that's the problem. Selling guns is profitable. Selling war is profitable. Selling drugs and keeping diseases going to sell drugs is profitable. Like all of these things are profitable for the big industries to continue to, to cause harm to. And you can have... Yes, we can have philanthropists donating $10 million here or $50 million there or $100 million there to try to address these problems. But ultimately, the system is causing the problems far, far, far faster than the tiny little rounding error roll-off percentage that we're putting into trying to address the problems. Like that's, I don't think we can address climate change unless we address the underlying like we can't keep profiting off of damaging the planet. So one of the things that you started to see in the last election was that there were a, there was a lot. It's, this is a discussion that a lot of you know the younger generation, millennials, if you will, are are asking about and talking yeah. about. There was um there was a moment where Nancy Pelosi was on CNN um, and uh, someone she was doing a, a town hall and someone said you know. My theory, same thing. My theory is that capitalism does not work. Just if you look at it from a from a financial standpoint, you have you know six the six richest people in the world have the same amount of wealth as the bottom three point six billion. Yeah. Uh, uh, ironically, the six richest people, most of them, the majority of them, um, have made their wealth through tech. Um, and yeah. as you said, capitalism is designed to wreak havoc. You know, yeah. it is uh, um, it it is a a philosophy where we are looking at the biggest gains, not necessarily the implications. Right. But and again, it's going to get worse and worse over the coming years because of technology now. Okay, so that was where I was going to go. So one of the things that I that I was noticing in your in your documentary is that you were using technology yeah. to try to yeah. solve the problem, but yeah. isn't technology creating the problem? I I, I mean. Artificial intelligence and exponential learning for computers is like both exciting and horrifying at the same time. This is a conversation we have on the podcast a lot. Yeah, and yeah. this is, and I'm I'm thinking of working on something along these lines. In fact, because it's it's this fascinating challenge that we have. Um, we have the world's best computers all trying to maximize profit for a handful of small companies. Like the capitalism is just siloing money into the hands of fewer and fewer people, right? It's just extracting wealth from the planet, extracting resources and putting money and wealth and resources into fewer and fewer hands. And like that, but there's got to be, bode well. so th this is, it doesn't bode well, but the thing that I don't understand is what are the implications for that? It's, it's, it, if you if we were to go back to you know Martin Bailey castles in the north of England you know hundreds of years ago there would there were you know often feudalistic uprisings and people that were trying to sack the king and the castle and this that and the other because it was it was similar but you know not to not not on a global scale there has to be at some point people saying i've had enough i'm fed up or or i yeah or, or i'm with you 
And that's why the, I think this idea needs to get out there more and more so that people can realize. There, there's so many, there's so much discontent in this country, right? So we, yeah. we see what has come out uh, with the election last year and so many people being really, really displeased with the state of things. And we also, it's, it was also really, really fascinating the, the fluidity with which some people were Trump supporters or Bernie supporters, right? The, the spectrum has gotten so far to the left and so far to the right that it's completely gone full circle. And there were lots of Americans that were like, oh, I could vote for either one of these two people. I, I think what this is in response to is, um, and I don't know, I'm just like, these are new thoughts sort of developing right now, but the, the, it's a response to, Frustration with the status quo and frustration with with how business is operating currently. Um, I don't know, they're, they're, we're on this really really interesting time where I think the general population is going to come to some awakening of we need to really redesign our system and what does that look like and those are the questions that I don't have answers to. That I don't I don't know who has those answers. Like how do we redesign a system that works for everybody that works for for our society. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think no matter how you redesign the system that, that, uh, on paper, it's always going to look good. You know, you know, uh, right. communism looks great on paper until right. people want a bigger house right. and a faster right. car and better food than their neighbor. But I do think that, you know, that, that we, that we, we have an opportunity right now. There is so much discontent. It's funny because, you know, I have, guests on this podcast that range from CEOs of, you know, CEO of Disney, the, you know, of people who are specialists in foreign affairs or legal matters or mm-hmm. tech or culture or whatever. And the conversation always ends up right where we are. Hmm. And I think that, um, I don't, I think that it is everyone who is feeling this, but they also feel, or feel helpless. Like, what am I, what can I do? Yeah. Uh, and I think that that's the thing that, um, that that I think about a lot and have been trying to kind of you know make changes to do and 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 you know when I look at the this this film and I looked at your last film Chasing Ice and uh, um, and I think about the the direction that this planet is going in for my children uh, it's something that uh, that I'm trying to figure out yeah you know. I think we're all looking for the answer to that question. <laughs> all right, so so let's so let's kind of yeah. let's wrap up with some uh, uh, some some happy stuff. Yeah, um, I promise we we will we'll go there. So, um, what are some of the things that you have done? You've been documenting yeah. these things for ten years yeah. now. Um, uh, what are some of the things that you've done that you feel are making a difference yeah. beyond the movies that that yeah. the average listener can do? Well, the average, I mean, as you were saying, electric car, I got an electric car and put solar panels So an electric car is, is huge, right? It that, actually makes a huge so difference. So if, if you're driving on it, there are pros and cons, right? There And there are critiques of what an electric car is doing and the batteries. But here's, here's really what we need to do. We need to electrify everything, and then we need to clean up our electricity production. Those two things do a massive, massive dent at climate change. We can also talk about food, agriculture, animal emissions. There are a bunch of different ways that we're emitting greenhouse gases. But really, there's a two-step process that covers most of it. Electrify everything, clean up our electricity production. So in that pursuit, even if your electric car is being powered by 
energy coming from a coal-fired power plant, it's still more efficient than a gas-guzzling vehicle. And if that coal-fired power plant gets replaced with renewable clean energy, then the then it's massive, massive reduction. So like those are the steps that we need to be taking. If you can afford to put solar panels in your house, do it. If you can afford an electric car, do it. And the more and more people well, actually, do electric that, cars are uh, these days are a, a lot often less expensive than the gas. They've version. gotten so cheap, and yeah. that's the thing. Like this conversation right now wouldn't have looked the same way five or ten years ago. It wouldn't have looked the same way two years ago. Two years, I, I couldn't. Yeah. I, like five years ago, I couldn't afford an electric car, um, but I bought one about two years ago. Yeah. Um, and then what? What else? So from a from a food standpoint, what yeah. do you, what do you tell people to do? Um, eat better. So be aware of your food and and eat better food. So just one other thing in regards to there's a big conversation around organic and and pesticides or not. The one of the things that I learned on this project that I knew nothing about are dead zones in the ocean. So our use of fertilizers in the continental U.S. those fertilizers run downstream and they go into the rivers and they end up a lot of them end up in the gulf of mexico and the gulf of mexico is a massive dead zone right now because of a huge influx of fertilizer that is causing algae to propagate and it just suffocates it just consumes all the oxygen and they're dead zones in the ocean because of our use of fertilizers i don't think farmers realize that they are killing the ocean right hmm. they're they don't realize that their practice is killing the ocean. So we need to be moving away from those things. We, the more organic you can do, the better. With regards to meat consumption, eat smaller animals and eat animals less frequently. Like eat mostly plants. The things that are better for the planet are actually better for your health too. All right. So eat quality meat. If you're if you're eating, if you want to eat steak, grass-fed, free-range, grass-fed and grass-finished steak is actually carbon negative. Like the amount of land that's being used to support those animals is really, really high, and that's a carbon-negative source, as opposed to the factory farming meat where you've got thousands and thousands of cattle in a tiny little area eating the wrong foods, and they're emitting lots of greenhouse it, gases. It's interesting that you say this because a couple weeks back I had um, Tim Wu um, on the podcast, um, and he's a legal expert um, at Columbia. He wrote the book The Master Switch, which was about, um, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, he's, he's the guy who came up with net neutrality, determinant neutrality, and he was saying that he's working on a new project now, but one of the things that he's trying to think, the new project is about bigness and how we, sh we it, it's not good for society, right. right? And he was saying that the way he is approaching it from a personal perspective is he doesn't think about things as what am I going to buy you know, where, what am I going to shop for? But he thinks about it as what am I supporting? So if he yeah. buys a steak yeah. from, you yeah. know, from a farm that is, you know, putting hormones into the, whatever right. it is, like he's now supporting that. Yeah. And so it sounds like you're saying something very similar is that like, you know, if you're going to eat these things, you're thinking about, think about the fact that you are supporting right. these effects. You are part of the problem. Like if you are buying, a, a, you know, they call it what a CAFO, CAFOs. Um, uh, what is it, that? Um, I'm blanking on what the acronym stands for right now. Um, but it's about the concentrated food lots for, for animal industry. Um, uh, you're, you're being part of the problem there. If you're not, if you're not supporting the better, the better solutions, right? I, I can't, in, I can't 
invest in fossil fuels ethically at all. I don't know how people do that, right? But there are there are colleges that are doing a huge divestment campaign. Where is your money? Like, where is your retirement account? Like, is your are you walking the talk in terms of where your money is invested? Um, are you uh, are you making like every everything you buy is a vote, right? So you're voting every single time you make a purchase. So I'm, I resonate with what you're saying. Tim's concept is there. Like, you're making that vote through your food purchases three times a day. And you can be supporting things that are good and sustainable for the planet, or you can be supporting things that are part of the problem. So um, shrimp, like one of the worst things for the ocean is shrimp. I, that's what I feel great what, pain about. What do you mean? Because, like eating shrimp is one of the worst things you could possibly do for the ocean. The way they harvest shrimp, they just set up these huge nets and they like scrape the bottom. And when they pull the nets up, there's a lot of bycatch. There's a, there are a lot of animals that aren't shrimp that they catch by accident in the process of collecting shrimp. Now, unfortunately, the way the systems are set up, they don't just take these fish and then sell the fish. Most of the time, those fish just literally get tossed off the boat and go back into the ocean as dead fish. They get suffocated when they're in the nets and they get tossed overboard. And now you've got a bunch of dead shrimp, a bunch of dead fish as the byproduct of them trying to harvest shrimp. So, so I haven't eaten shrimp in multiple years now. Because of that. Because of that problem. All right, can we end on a, on a positive note with yeah. something? Um, there are sustainable fish that you can eat. And Whole Foods is actually pretty good about like sustainable fish. There's an app um, that you can get uh, from the Monterey Bay Aquarium. Um, I think it's just called Seafood, Seafood Watch, I think the app is called. And it'll tell you um, what to And eat. you can tell what's sustainable and what's not sustainable. The smaller, the better. Like oysters. Eat all the oysters you want. Oysters are great. Because they... They clean the ocean. They're, you can farm them. They're, they, they're filtering water. Catfish you can farm? Um, catfish, I don't know about. Maybe, probably, yeah. Um, and eat more vegetables. Eat more vegetables. Eat good, so, clean vegetables. Uh, so just to wrap up, um, the the movie came out on Netflix when? Uh, last summer. Last yeah, we summer. We premiered at Sundance a year ago. And have you, yeah. have you has there anything that's yeah. changed in the Carl world since oh, then? Well, or? The Carl, I mean, countless stories and anecdotes and, and feedback that we get in social media. Um, our, so uh, I don't even know where to start. Our, our team, some of the subjects of the film are really working on how do we save and protect coral reefs. Like how, right now it's sort of a last ditch effort and it's, it's really the mindset right now is how do we create seed banks in the ocean so that if temperatures stabilize at some point, can these corals be the seed banks that can repropagate and resupply the rest of the world's oceans with corals? The, the corals do a mass spawning, which is... In and it's in and of itself super super fascinating um, for particular coral species at one night based on the full moon at a certain time all the corals will release all their eggs and gametes and sperm at the same time of the night like wow. clockwork and you'll see just billions. Oh, and just, do they know where it comes from or why? It's or? it's linked in with the lunar cycle. I don't fully understand it. The corals get it. We don't get it, <laughs> right? But they're all imagine everybody. Like all the corals at the same time, clockwork. I mean, literally. I, we were on a boat, and our our dive master, the scientist there on the boat, were like, "Wait, wait for it, wait longer." And we're all just sitting on the boat with all our gear, just waiting. And they're looking at their watch, and they say, "Now, let's go in the water." And we all jump in the water, and we're down there. And like five minutes later, literally, all of the corals just start erupting, and it's just this mass wow. coral orgy happening in the ocean at the same time. And of you're the night, watching this whole thing. Just happen. watching coral sex throughout the entire <laughs> ocean. When you get back on the boat, you smell a little funky, but 
um, it, it is this fascinating feat of nature. And nature can heal itself. Nature knows how to heal itself. Like, mm-hmm. Life knows how to survive if you give it the chance. And life is constantly changing. Like right now, that's the big, like the planet's going to be fine. It's just humans. It's just a matter of whether we're it's on it. It's just humans are on it, right? Life is going to continue. Life's going to be fine. Um, and it'd be nice to keep these coral reefs around. It'd be nice for beautiful and aesthetic reasons, but also for the services that they provide. And, um, and so Richard and his team are working on that. We're working on a big uh, education campaign. The biggest thing, the easiest thing is to share the movie. Like we, yeah. we put all the effort and work into getting all of these ideas into the movie itself. So invite friends over, do a screening, just kick back, like host a screening at your house every week. Invite another friend over to just come over. Let's have some beers and watch the movie. Just some organic, organic, healthy yes, beers. Exactly. Uh, not in a yeah. plastic bottle. Yeah. Uh, don't use plastic. Yeah, no, don't use plastic. Waste. Um, well, thank you so yeah. much. Uh, I, I really appreciate you taking the time. The movie, Absolutely again, fantastic. is yeah. uh, Chasing Carl. It's on Netflix. Um, and yeah. I definitely urge everyone to watch it. Yeah, it's fascinating it. and scary and sad, but also uplifting a little uplifting too. Uplifting and inspiring, hopefully. Thanks. Bit. Thanks for coming out. Thanks so much. This is Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. Hey, Nick, so that was pretty fascinating and, and very terrifying. And on it was, a fascinating... It was fascinating, right? I mean, I, I didn't expect that it was going to go there, but uh, but I find it I found it, you know, really, really fascinating, uh, all the things he had to say. Yeah, it's true, although when you set people up for pondering the, the sixth extinction, I imagine that um, they go to a, a dark place. But w- w- without belaboring, you know, uh, your conversation really dovetailed, to me at least, with uh, a piece that you wrote on the Hive this week about um, really the sort of, you know, whether we're beginning to see the end of, of Facebook, whether whether this uh, a demise really is coming. It, it seems like, you know, you've actually been kind of working your way towards this mentally for some time. Listeners of this podcast will remember uh, Tim Wu and Scott Galloway uh, have, have noted in the past on, on, on previous episodes of Inside the Hive that Facebook just isn't as popular as it used to be. People kind of hate it. And also, by the way, it might have like totally, uh, you know, set a dumpster fire on our democracy. Do you want to outline your thesis a little bit and and, and um, refresh us on, on where you took it? Well, I, I just want to, I just want to, you know, give you um, some major props right here because you have found like like an amazing editor. You found a perfect segue from climate change to social media. Uh, and you did it. It was smooth. I mean, you were you were. I mean, you kind of like Donald Trump there. So uh, you know, well, the podcasting clap. money makes it worth it. <laughs> so yeah. So um, so I uh, I wrote this week uh, a piece that that uh, that actually you know kind of blew up a little bit on social media. Ironically enough, um, uh, talking about how you know Facebook is in trouble, and one of the things that I have seen, and and it's anecdotal. There's no data, you know. There's no big data to back this up, and and I have theories of why there's no big data to back this up, and we can get to that in a little bit. But you know, more and more, um, I, I wrote in this article that you know, five years ago, four years ago, everyone I knew had a Facebook account, um, and they had a Facebook app on their phone, and they had Messenger or whatever it was, and now. I mean, I'm not just over-exaggerating when I say this. Pretty much every single human being I know has deleted Facebook from their phone because they feel like it's too invasive. They're sick of it. They don't feel happy when they use it. There's all these things that have, have come about as a result of it. And I started to, to notice that. And, and we, 
we're seeing Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg respond to um, all the fake news stuff, saying that they kind of have to rethink what Facebook is. And, and there's been a lot of questions around whether those those thoughts from from Zuckerberg specifically are um, are moral, uh, if they, the company is trying to be ethical in realizing that Facebook and social media are not the best thing for the world, or if there's something else. And my theory is that it's predominantly something else, and the predominance is that uh, people are just fed up with it. And um, and I know there's been articles written a thousand times about the end of Facebook, but I really feel like there's a, a, a tide change that's happened. Well, one of the interesting things, that this is actually not in the story, I'm curious to get your, your take on it, but um, one of the sort of trending assumptions after Facebook changed its, its algorithm to de-emphasize news and emphasize what our friends and family are sharing is um, the idea that Zuckerberg both wants to get into China and sort of needs to to continue to grow Facebook at the extraordinary clip that it's been growing for the past 10 years. So do you think that his interest in getting in China will sort of, um, I guess, narrow Facebook's scope so that it'll really just be truly a social network among friends and family members? Do you think that that um, in, in growing scale, he's going to limit the uh, what Facebook connects us with and, and to? I think that what's going to happen is that, um, and look, predicting this stuff is, is you know, it's it's prediction suicide because anything can come about that you don't realize. I mean, you know, I predicted last year that 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 Twitter would be, you know, its stock price would would be would have fallen dramatically by the end of the year, and it had actually risen quite a, quite a, not quite a bit, but it had risen a bit. Um, and the thing that I hadn't anticipated, and no one had anticipated at the beginning of 2017, was that that Donald Trump was going to use Twitter as his permanent mouthpiece, even when he was president, and also that he was going to be as bombastic and asinine and ridiculous as he was before he was president um, on the, on that network. Simultaneously, I didn't predict that Facebook was going to use everything it could to destroy Snap, uh, you know, uh, and put Snapchat out of business, essentially. I mean, they didn't put them out of business, but they are, they are in trouble. And therefore, um, advertising dollars have now gone back from Snap to Twitter. Um, and now with Facebook saying they're going to get out of the news game, they're going to go to Twitter even more. And so there are all these outside forces that you can never really predict in this business. But I think one thing you can predict is is how users are going to react to things. And the thing that we have all predicted correctly is that Twitter has had a really hard time growing um, because of the volatility on the platform and it doesn't make people feel great uh, and so on and so forth. And Facebook, I think, is is reaching a crescendo where it is having a difficult time trying to get its traditional users that have been on the platform for a decade or so to want to continue to do it. It's, you know, they're kind of fed up with it. People are sick of, from this, there's like a three-pronged thing that's going on. The first is, um, is just the experience. Like, you don't go on Facebook and think like, oh, I feel so great about myself now. You either go on there and you see something someone else is doing that's better than what you did and you feel like shit, or you go on there and you have to like, you know, you've posted just a picture of your kid and someone's complaining because you're sitting on the swing set incorrectly, like some kid that you went to high school with has got an, a viewpoint on that. Or, yeah, or you learn a debate that about, running a pedophilia ring in the bottom of a pizza yeah, joint. Yeah, or there's, you learn about the pedophilia ring that doesn't exist, or there's, you know, there's a, a, a litany of those things. The other thing is, is Facebook's privacy is 
is still to this day terrifying. You know, they, there was an article that just came out about how Facebook looks at the scientifically looks at the the dust on the lens of your smartphone camera from your photos to determine who you're friends with in in the photos. If I take a picture of you and I send it to you and we're not friends on Facebook and you upload it, it will it knows, oh well Nick Bilton has taken photos and there's the same dust particles and John has the same dust particles on this image, so they are friends. This and there's that that's happening. And I also think that we've been, the last thing is we've been at war with algorithms for, for, for the last few years and they've gotten better and better and they know how to suck us in and manipulate us into looking at things. And, you know, like the perfect example is that pop-up you get where it's like, you know, Nick and John are talking about a photo and you're like, well, what the fuck is the photo? I have to click on the photo. <laughs> like, and, 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 and then you're like, it's just a photo of a cappuccino. Like, why did I do that? And, um... And I think that in this this war with algorithms, uh, the thing that most people are realizing is the only way to play the game is not to play it. Not to, it's to win the game is not to play at all. And uh, and I think that you know I think that Facebook is fully aware of that. They have more levers and levers and data points and this that and the other that they can see everything that's happening, um, and they can spot trends before they happen. Uh, and I think that they're spotting the trend that there are people that are not happy on the service and are kind of abandoning it. Yeah, one one thing that that is obvious is um, it's a, it's a funny world out there in social media um, where you're either kind of with Facebook or you're against it. You know, you, you've said to me a million times that the Zuckerberg philosophy is pretty simple. He he tries to buy you, and if you don't consent, he he basically tries to to, to you know compete against you and enroll you. Um, but one of the funny things that I remember Galloway mentioning on this podcast about a, a month or two ago is uh, that Facebook is basically just a roll-up at this point of, of large social networks, right? Um, whereas Apple is in many different kinds of businesses. Amazon is in like a bazillion businesses, you know, everything from, from bookstores to supermarkets to movie studio. Um, uh, Facebook does largely one thing. Do you think that the... The, the regulatory issues are also going to become uh, eventually too much for Facebook to bear? <clears throat> I don't think they're going to become too much for Facebook to bear because Facebook has, um, you know, a behemoth of lawyers. Yeah, the lawyers. best lobbyists in the world, of course, right. Yeah, and they're spending millions and millions of dollars on lobbyists and lawyers and anticipating all this stuff. And, you know, look, I mean, I I, I write these articles about Facebook and, and the bad things they do, but, you know, as a company... Um, kind of bullying and the privacy stuff, but I know a lot of people that work there that I think are, are really good people, and they sure. believe in what they're doing. They just see it from a different perspective. And and um, but you know, even this week at Davos, um, the, you know, one of the things that you're seeing happening is like leaders like Theresa May and people like George Soros and and other folks that are there that are talking about how how there needs to be regulation on these big tech companies, whether it's Google or Facebook or Amazon, but that's a conversation that you're seeing happen. And, and I've, you know, I've covered Davos before I've been there. I've never heard that conversation before. Um, this is the first time that I have heard, you know, world leaders talking about this in the way that they are. Um, and I think that, you know, I think that, you know, there was an article earlier this year, or sorry, last year by um, Ben Smith on BuzzFeed, where he was talking about how, these tech companies are now the new the new oil companies are the new Rockefellers and and so on and um, and that they are going to use their power and their might to ensure that no one can compete with them 
and um, and we're we're seeing we're seeing that happen right now. Um, and you know, just ask Evan Spiegel what it's like to you know have a better product than Facebook and see it completely copied and your company decimated as a result of it. So okay, so let me let me uh, ask you one final question, um, and it's an impossible one. So feel free to just totally make up the answer. Um, but wh- where do you <clears> see where do you see Facebook and the competitive landscape in in fi- in five years? Let's say. Well, I just want you to know I make up every answer, uh, so uh, <laughs> I should just be blunt about that. that. Yeah. Um, uh, where do I see Facebook in five years? I, I it, look. If it were me, if I ran that company, and I don't, and uh, you know. Um, I, first of all, I would probably have a few private jets because that's important, mm-hmm. but, uh, um, but, and if I ran the company, my, what I would be trying to do is I would see the writing on the wall that, that social media is not going to be here forever in the way that it has been in the past. Right. And that that we will, that the future, so here's what I think is happening, that, you know, more and more, these places that we were used to coalesce around um, groups with groups of people, um, it was literally everyone in the same room together. That was Facebook. That was Twitter. That was that was kind of Snap in some ways, depending on how you shared stories. That was Instagram. That's what those things are. What's happening now is. I everyone I know is in group chats on Telegram or what sometimes on WhatsApp or on iMessages or whatever it is, and those are becoming these mini social networks, right? So right. I have uh, friends that are that have a a Bitcoin group chat on Telegram. I have friends that have a photography one. I on on iMessages and things like that, and and so the concept of social media is becoming much smaller and more private and you can say the things that you want to say knowing that no one else is going to be able to comment on them unless they have been invited to this group and so what the future of facebook is to me and i think zuckerberg kind of gets this which is why he bought oculus vr is it's much more about community around experiences and so if it were me i would be like doubling down on you know creating tv shows and films and games and all these other things that are that make you feel good afterwards that you've like you felt like you've actually done something with your time but around community so that you and i could like watch a documentary together like you know chasing carl and have comments about it or or whatever it is you know all these different things like that and so i think that 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 if the company recognizes what the future of social is which they probably do better than anyone that they will kind of move away from just social media around nonsense and more around content. Well, let's hope, right? I mean, it's, uh... I think the question is, 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 <clears throat> and I, you know, based on my own actions, I think I can answer this question, but the question is, is what, what, you know, most people have 150 friends or less on Facebook. And so if you share a video of you and your kid um, do you mind that 150 people can see it and comment on it? And the answer is, um, you probably don't want your parents and your coworker and the guy you went to high school with who still lives in the same town commenting on the same thing. And so will that go somewhere else? And I, I think that that's still to be determined, but um, based on the way I share things now, that's the, that's the way I do it. Yeah, it, it seems so logical that um, 
that as social media evolves, it would actually evolve in the way that our lives have evolved, where you have a private life, a professional life, a, a, a publicish life, um, and that you would kind of want many of those things to be um, to be separated. Uh, yeah, completely. Uh, so it, yeah, I mean, just it's just funny, you know. I'm not trying to make a sort of sweeping statement about Silicon Valley or humanity, um, but uh, but it, it, it's funny how. How the arrogance with which so much of the tech industry has tried to remake life is just being humbled by recognizing that, in, in many ways, um, human behavior is uh, is unassailable, and and um, and uh, there are certain sort of you know fundamental characteristics of of, of how we live that um, that like kind of work, you know. So it will we'll be interesting to see how it all turns out. But anyway, Nick, thanks for. Uh, but but yeah. it, you know what? There's if it doesn't work out, at least we can rest assured. That as we begin the halcyon extinction, the sixth one, yeah. that we'll probably we'll probably all be dead anyway. Some maybe an asteroid, dinosaurs returning, you know, CO two destroying the Earth, whatever it is. But you know, so we have that to look forward to. Uh, next week's episode, we'll talk about the seventh extinction. <laughs> have a great week, John. Thank uh, you, you too, so man. much. I'll see you then. Thanks to my guest today, Jeff Orlowski. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a glowing, amazing 17-star review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. Thanks to my editor, John Kelly, not the guy in the White House, the other one. And thank you all for listening. I will see you all next week. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices, and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th.